More jobs and workers to fill them. That's the message today in the new unemployment numbers. What does it all add up to for Texas? The latest today on the Texas Standard. Texas Standard is a production of KUT Austin, KERA North Texas, Houston Public Media, and Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. With support from Rand Group, software delivered as promised. No surprises. I'm David Brown. Where's the party? The Tea Party, that is, as Democrats appear to be turning out in record numbers on this last day of early voting. What happened to the activist movement on the other side of the political ledger? Plus, a year after Sutherland Springs, survivors in an uphill legal battle against the Air Force. Also, the week in Texas politics with the Texas Tribune and a whole lot more. It's the Friday edition of the Texas Standard, and it all gets started right after this. No matter where you are, it's Texas Standard Time on this second day of November 2018. I'm David Brown. Great to have you with us. Remember when the Beatles gave their last public concert on the rooftop of the Apple Building in London? You know, that was before Apple meant iPhones, by the way. Gasoline sold for 35 cents a gallon. The average cost of a new house was $15,500. A guy named Neil Armstrong radioed Houston that the Eagle had landed. And unemployment in the U.S. was 3.7%. Well, 49 years later, guess what it is now? According to the Labor Department this morning, it's 1969 again. That's what it is. Unemployment now stands at 3.7%, with earnings up over the past year by more than 3% as we head into the holiday season. That's in part because since March of this year, there have been more jobs than workers every single month. But it's not all happy, happy, joy, joy, however, because if you're hiring staff for the holidays, where do you find the workers? And how do you keep the good ones? Right, you have to offer them more money. And to offset what you're paying workers, you just might raise prices. Might? Folks, it's already happening. As the Wall Street Journal reports this week, everything from kitty litter to Clorox and Coca-Cola costs more right now than it did this time last year. Got a plane to catch? Better book it now because prices are already taking off. And so what do all these numbers add up to politically, I hear you asking? Well, if past his prologue, not much for the midterms at any rate. Then again, these are no ordinary midterms if turnout is any indication. We will certainly know more by this time next Wednesday. Stay tuned. But what does all this mean for Texas? That's a different question. Ray Perryman is president and CEO of the Perryman Group, which is an economic research and analysis firm based in Waco. And he joins us now. Mr. Perryman, welcome back to the Texas Standard. Glad to be here. All right. So uh, we've heard those numbers. That's a pretty low unemployment figure. How do you see this playing out for the Lone Star State? Well, Texas has been doing very well. In fact, Texas has been growing more rapidly than the U.S. economy through most of this period, this 10-year, almost 10-year period of recovery we've had now, and and continues to do quite well. Our state unemployment rate is just a little bit higher, and that's primarily because you have a, a few areas down along the border where, where the rate is usually a little bit higher, just because they have a much a much younger population than than the rest of the country. But but on the whole, Texas is is at full employment. It, it, we're creating jobs at a remarkable rate. Uh, we're we're leading the nation. Uh, over the past 12 months, over 400,000 jobs, just us and Florida, the only two states in that league. And so Texas is doing very well right now, and there's every indication that that should continue for a while. Certainly some challenges out there, but, but there's a very positive indication. You know, it, it, interesting uh, comments made by the head of the Dallas Fed not that long ago, and he said that immigration reform is key to growing our economy. 
Uh, that sort of smarts right now, given the news that we've been uh, reading, certainly over the past several days when it comes to uh, immigration, the talk of closing the borders. And now this, we don't have enough workers to fill the jobs. How do you see it? Well, it's absolutely critical that we have immigration reform and be able to use that workforce. And in Texas, more than any other place, just some quick numbers. Today, roughly one in 10 people who go to work in Texas today, about 1.2 million people will be undocumented. We only have about 500,000 unemployed people in Texas, and very few of them have the skills that some of these workers have in construction and other areas. So basically, our economy would be in, in dire straits without the, the workforce we use, we use now. So the, the key to immigration reform is we desperately need it, but it needs to be a type of reform that lets us use these workers in a way that eliminates the risk to employers, eliminates some of the conditions that they have to go through at times to to come here, and, and that sort of thing. So yeah, immigration is a huge issue, and I know it's become very politicized, and a lot of people are, are riled up about it on both sides. But I have to tell you, at the end of the day, it's not Republican or Democrat. It's just math. Yeah. Uh, you know, you look at the construction industry, for example, that they're leading in many areas uh, when it comes to a shortage of workers because so many people have jobs. And even if you do get people uh, here to Texas to fill some of those positions, where are they going to live? Right. I mean, that's a problem. Right. Oh, you have a lot of problems. And, and, and with the, I mentioned 10 percent of our workforce in, in Texas is undocumented right now, about 35 percent of our construction workforce. And we have massive amounts of construction going on all over the state. Of course, the Gulf Coast still trying to, to rebuild from, from Harvey. Right. And, and so many things going on. And the bottom line is, back in the day, when, when Texas would do well and maybe the rest of the country wouldn't be doing so well, other people would come from other states to work here. There's basically full employment all over the country right now. As you mentioned, more job openings than, than people unemployed. And of course, there's no match of those skills in any case. But, but we're in a situation now where our population and workforce is simply not growing fast enough to keep pace with economic growth. And so we, we desperately need many, many solutions, one of which is some responsible immigration reform. So low unemployment, rising inflation, roller coaster markets. Want to venture what all this means politically? Well, I, I try I try to do that as little as possible. But the bottom line is, normally, who's which party's in power doesn't affect economic growth a great deal. But we we really do have some fundamental issues in terms of trade wars and and uh, immigration things like that that are really having a profound effect on, on Texas and could really impact our ability to grow both short term and long term. That we really could see a different approach to. And so I, I hope the rhetoric cools down some after the election on both sides and we can get together and come up with some reasonable solutions. Ray Perryman, President and CEO of the Perryman Group, economic research and analysis firm based out of Waco. Mr. Perryman, thanks so much. My pleasure. Texas Tea is booming right now, but the Texas Tea Party, whatever happened to them? Wasn't that long ago that the loose coalition of grassroots groups demanding less government and lower taxes took Texas Republican politics by storm. But this year, especially compared with activism among Texas Democrats, it might be fair to wonder, is the Tea Party over? Reporter Shelley Koffler takes a look at how the movement's influence has shifted and the effect that may have come Tuesday night. Six years ago, when Ted Cruz began his campaign for the U.S. Senate, almost no one knew who he was. Then he began courting local Tea Party clubs, visiting three or four on a weekend. Freedom Works and National Tea Party Group threw money behind Cruz. Volunteers staged rallies, distributed yard signs, and Cruz won. It is a testament to Republican women, to Tea Party leaders, 
Fast forward to 2018, and it's Cruz's Democratic opponent, who now has yard signs planted across Texas. Beto O'Rourke is the one who's packed town hall meetings and who rocketed in the polls after leading hundreds of activists in Tornillo, protesting the tent city there that still houses immigrant children. This is not America. This is not us. This is not what we do. Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin, says Democrats nationally and in some parts of Texas have unleashed the kind of intensity we used to see from the Tea Party. Whether there's still that ability to mobilize Republican voters on the other side is probably the big question going into the cycle. Henson believes one reason the Tea Party's galvanizing force has slipped in local and congressional races is that conservatives no longer have Barack Obama to target. And Donald Trump has taken over the role of chief agitator of conservatives. Tea Party candidates have also been elected. In Texas, the movement has been changed by that success. I think once you have people that are actually part of the institutions, it inevitably looks different because you're not banging from the outside. You're like it or not, and you're part of the status quo, and you are part of the establishment. Now, being labeled establishment makes some Tea Partiers cringe, but they get the fact that they're now creating policy, not just criticizing it. In the Texas House, 12 Tea Party-elected Republicans have formed the Freedom Caucus. At the recent TribFest Public Policy Forum, three of them, Representatives Matt Rinaldi of Irving, Matt Krause of Fort Worth, and Matt Schaefer from Tyler, sounded a lot like other Republicans. I I do think we need to eliminate Robin Hood. What I'd like to do is, is actually see property tax relief. You can't have true property tax relief without true spending restraint. But Schaefer is quick to say Tea Party Republicans are different. There is a tendency for maybe Republicans in the mainstream to gravitate towards the bureaucracy, to gravitate towards uh, large corporate business interests. It's not what the Texas Association of Business says is important. We're going to go back to the grassroots, people on the street, constitutional principles. What doesn't seem very grassroots-like to some critics, though, is the big money Tea Party candidates now get from West Texas billionaires and their Empower Texans PAC. The group has donated millions to candidates who support cutting taxes, private school vouchers, anti-abortion legislation, and a failed bathroom bill, which would have restricted bathrooms used by transgender students. The big donations speak to a Tea Party movement that may be less independent and less hungry. Some of the local chapters, including one in Arlington, have shut down. Fran Rhodes is a leader in the still influential Northeast Tarrant Tea Party. She says she doesn't really care if the movement is as visible because experience has made it more effective. Yard signs don't elect people. Rallies are fun, but they don't get people out to vote necessarily. The very most effective thing you can do to get a person elected is talk to voters. So we do a lot of door knocking. We do phone banking. Still, UT's Henson believes Republicans have lost something important. Should the Republican Party lose ground in this election, you are going to hear the argument that the loss of ground was in part due to the decline in intensity of the activist wing of the Republican Party. This election may be a test of whether grassroots passions have shifted from Tea Party Republicans to the Democrats and whether it's enough of a shift to decide who wins in Texas. For the Texas Standard, 
I'm Shelley Koffler. Here's social media editor Wells Dunbar on this Friday. Happy Friday to you, sir. Happy Friday to you as well, David. It is the last day of early voting in the midterm elections, and that fact has not gone unnoticed by many on social media. Yeah, on our Facebook page, Frank Gonzalez is showing off his brand new I Voted sticker. Looks good on everybody. Nathan Graves says he's knocking on 100 doors for his candidate every day. Until 7 p.m. Tuesday. There's some dedication for you. Beatriz Vera says she's also block walking for her candidate in El Paso. She says she's tired and anxious, but doing her part as a 2018 voter turnout fellow. Hmm. Meanwhile, Russ Newsom says he's trying to survive this last barrage of political ads. Don't worry, Russ. It will all (laughs) all be over soon. And should one still need a sample ballot, I should mention here that we've got you covered. You can go to texasdecides.org. That's where we have our interview interactive uh, voter guide in partnership with the League of Women Voters. Just type in your address and you will get a personalized ballot down to your district. Again, that's at texasdecides.org. Yeah, your little cheat sheet. That's what you yeah. need to be bringing into, you, into the ballot booth with you. That's uh, that's what you need, texasdecides.org. Interesting question New York Times is raising. Does Texas Senator Ted Cruz enjoy a sodded lead over Beto O'Rourke or are polls not accounting for turnout? Hmm. Let us know what you think. Tweet us at Texas Standard Wells Dunbar back in 35. Support for Texas Standard comes from TCU, where horned frogs strive to be ethical leaders and global citizens. Like Dr. Jonathan Oliver, who's researching solutions to reduce concussion damage among athletes. TCU, lead on. It's the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. It wasn't long after November 5th, 2017 in the aftermath of an horrific shooting at a church in Sutherland Springs, that the Air Force made an admission. It failed to enter the gunman's criminal history into the FBI's background check system, a lapse that may have helped him purchase a firearm. Some survivors of the shooting have sued the Air Force for damages, but Texas Public Radio's Carson Frame tells us they face an uphill legal battle. After the sirens and gunshots faded away, information about the shooter, Devin Kelly, started spilling out into public view. Several rocky years in the Air Force, his escape from a New Mexico psychiatric hospital, and a court-martial conviction for domestic assault when he fractured his stepson's skull. Because of his crime, Kelly was legally barred from buying guns and ammunition. But word quickly spread that the Air Force hadn't turned over his fingerprint cards and the outcome of his court-martial to a national crime database. Filed today, the first legal action in the wake of last month's mass shooting in Sutherland Springs. And at the heart of it... United States Air Force. Joe and Clarice Holcomb, members of a family that lost nine in the shooting, filed a wrongful death claim against the Air Force last November. They asked for $25 million in damages. Joe Holcomb told the San Antonio TV station KSAT that his goal was to force accountability and hopefully save lives. We want to discipline the Air Force so that something like this is not going to happen again. Since then, more than 60 other people have submitted claims, either for the loss of loved ones or for injuries sustained during the Sutherland Springs shooting. The cases are being consolidated before a U.S. District Court judge in San Antonio. This is a unique unique case because the U.S. government has already done a substantial investigation into what happened, both leading up to and at the time of the tragedy. That's April Strahan, one of the lead lawyers representing the Holcomb family. She points to published reports from the Defense Department's Inspector General dating back to 1997. They found that the military branches consistently failed to input crime data about service members. 
In 2015, the Air Force failed about 14% of the time. Jamal Al-Safar also represents the Holcombs. He says they're frustrated that the government has admitted fault, but at the same time plans to file a motion to dismiss their case. This is hard. They've watched on their television screens and they've read in numerous newspaper accounts the heads of these departments, the Secretary of Air Force herself, state under oath, we made a big mistake and this was our fault and we should never have let this happen and we did. Even with these admissions, it's really difficult to sue the federal government. Gerald Treese is a professor of constitutional law at South Texas College of Law, Houston. He says the government can claim immunity in many cases. If I was the government and I knew that they couldn't sue me under sovereign immunity, I might say, you know, we killed Cock Robin, we were on the Kennedy assassination, because they're immune. He says that even if the Holcomb's lawyers can prove the Air Force was negligent, they still have to demonstrate cause and effect. The argument that's being made here by these lawsuits is the fact that if the Air Force had not been negligent, they would have reported this, and somehow people who were hurt wouldn't be hurt or killed. That's sort of a causation problem in the law. He points out that people can purchase guns at gun shows in Texas without having to clear a background check. I'm not excusing the military. I'm not excusing the, the, the mistake that was made. But at the same time, if that was the only way a person could get a firearm, that'd be one thing. But there are other ways to get it. Treese says the Holcomb's best bet may be to settle out of court. When asked about the status of the case, a spokesperson for the Air Force says she could not comment on pending litigation. In San Antonio, I'm Carson Frame for the Texas Standard. The government has until today, November 2nd, to file a motion to dismiss the Holcomb's lawsuit. We'll keep you posted. Support for coverage of business on Texas Standard comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider, ensuring compassionate care for injuries of every size at businesses big and small. Learn more at WorkSafeTexas.com. And you're listening to the Texas Standard. As Election Day draws nigh, the airwaves are getting ever more crowded with political ads. Texas Senator Ted Cruz and his challenger, Representative Beto O'Rourke in particular, have raised lots of money in their campaigns and are now spending a lot of it on TV and radio. Marketplace reporter Andy Euler is based in Austin, and he noticed some of those ads are in English, some are in Spanish. And he joins us now to talk about the complications of advertising to bilingual and monolingual communities. Andy, thanks for popping into the Texas Standard Studios. Good to be here, David. Uh, So tell us about the ads you've seen from each of these campaigns. What we're seeing is this sort of trend of ebb and flow in terms of who you think you're going to get to vote for Mm -hmm, you. So if you mm -hmm. think that the Hispanic vote is going to vote for you, if you're Beto O'Rourke and you're depending on that Hispanic vote, then you're probably going to invest a lot of money into it. Now, I know you're rather fluent in Spanish yourself. Yes. And and so you've had a chance to uh, to consume some of these ads firsthand. Are the messages similar or not so much? So, so what I did was I watched the ads, but I also reached out to some researchers who have specifically been looking at um, the messaging, right? Mm-hmm. Do, do the ads say the same thing? In English, it tends to be that the ads are so much more about policy. Um, they're so much more about, uh, you know, sort of economic growth, things like taxes, things like healthcare. Mm-hmm. Your Spanish language ads, generally speaking, are way more emotional and they talk to things like family values. They, they might bring up religion and Catholicism, things like that. I actually spoke with a woman at the University of San Diego, uh, University of California, San Diego, excuse me, Marissa Abrahano. She told me that, that she actually was studying this for, for years and, and noticed um, that it could be 
there could be a lot of consequences to, to these advertisements. If when you design them, you specifically design Spanish language ads that omit much more policy content than English language ads, then Spanish-speaking voters are not getting the same kind of information that monolingual English language folks get. Now, that's fascinating. Mm. Uh, is, is, it, is it worth it to candidates to do just Spanish-only ads? I mean, I, I wonder. So it depends. And, and what the problem could be is that the data that we have on who speaks Spanish in neighborhoods or even in cities right mm -hmm. now is way too broad. You can say in 78704, a bunch of these people speak Spanish. But you're not going to be able to sort of zero in. I mean, I guess you can you can have mailers, um, but you're not going to sort of individually look at who's speaking Spanish and how to advertise to them. And the problem is, I spoke with another researcher at Yale, Alex Kopic. He told me that the consequences for hitting somebody with an ad that doesn't appeal to them in the language of choice, mm -hmm. even if you're bilingual, there are huge sort of negative consequences to it. The major cost, and this is why I think we don't see more candidates doing it, is if you hit a monolingual English-only person with the Spanish version, they react extremely negatively. So uh, I guess we're still very much in the learning phase mm. when it comes to political messaging and targeting bilingual communities. The other thing that we're sort of noticing, Alex was very quick to tell me that we're seeing this happen. We don't know why it's happening. So so it could be that you sort of bristle if you hear an ad in Spanish, you want it to necessarily appeal to your culture if you're a monolingual English speaker. Um, but, but we don't really have the why as to that negative reaction. But he said it was something like 18% more negative reaction to those Spanish language ads if you hit somebody who only speaks English. This is a really a rich vein of uh, future research, it sounds like. <laughs> People will be looking at this, uh, this midterm for a lot of reasons. Sure. Andy Euler is studying this as a reporter for Marketplace. He's based in the Texas capital city, and he's been speaking with us from the Texas Standard Studios. Andy, always good to talk to you. You got it, David. Thank you. Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas CASA, advocating for a safe and positive future for all Texas children in the child protection system. Volunteer information at becomeacasa.org. Every child has a chance. It's you. From the Texas Standard Newsroom, I'm Becky Fogel with a roundup of news from across the state. Korean-American groups in Houston are raising concerns about the availability of translation services when voting, and they've met with Harris County officials to try to find a solution before Election Day on Tuesday, November 6. Sang Shin is president of the Asian-American Bar Association in Houston. He says this all started with an effort to turn out Korean-American voters this past Sunday. The Korean-American Voters League advertised in a local paper that translators would be available to help anyone who needed it at a Spring Branch polling location. And so it was really an, an issue of just trying to mobilize and get people comfortable voting. And it obviously attracted a lot of Korean voters, uh, American voters, who wanted to come and participate in their civic duty. Some of these individuals probably have never voted before. But election workers ended up barring the translators from the polling place, saying they were loitering and needed to stand outside of a 100-foot buffer zone. Shin says he understands election workers are just trying to do their jobs, but feels the law doesn't support their decision. Once they felt uncomfortable, they kicked all the Korean translators out of the building. 
And they said, if somebody wants you to come be their translator, they have to engage you beyond that 100-foot mark. So the Texas Election Code doesn't say 100 feet when it comes to requesting translation or doing anything like that. Shin was part of a group that met with the Harris County Clerk Wednesday to try to resolve this issue. Shin says he appreciates officials' willingness to address it, but doesn't expect a fix by Election Day. The due attention has been made, but does it protect not just Korean Americans, but other ethnic voters and how they can get translation services for this election? Absolutely not. People are allowed to request translation services at the polls, and almost anyone can serve as a translator, just as long as they're not the voter's employer or member of a labor union they belong to. The Texas Civil Rights project says that in the 2016 presidential election, almost a third of Asian American voters in Texas had limited English proficiency. Texas should have enough electricity to get through the winter and spring. That's according to the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, which operates most of the state's electric grid. ERCOT's Pete Warnkin says demand won't be as high this spring. We are forecasting a peak demand of just over 61,000 megawatts. That's well below the ERCOT record of about 67,000 megawatts set on May 29th of this year. While Texas lost three coal-burning power plants this year, the grid did fine, due in part to the state's mix of natural gas, wind, and solar power. A North Texas-based restaurant, bar, and dog park is looking to hire its first-ever pup turn to pet and play with dogs all day, all while making 100 bucks an hour. Mutt's Canine Cantina is asking applicants to apply for this doggone dream job in Fort Worth by posting a photo or video on Instagram by November 12th. That's a look at news from across the state. I'm Becky Fogel for the Texas Standard. Support for these Texas Standard headlines comes from the Texas Secretary of State, providing voters details on required identification for voting in person at the polls. More at votetexas.gov or 800-252-VOTE. 33 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time. I'm David Brown. When it comes to Texas cities, Houston and El Paso couldn't be further apart geographically, but they've got some things in common, too. For one, they both have large immigrant populations, and they happen to be the hometowns of the two men vying for U.S. Senate. When it comes to immigration, we know where Texas Senator Ted Cruz stands and Congressman Beto O'Rourke. But what do their constituents think? As Texas decides this nationally watched contest, Houston Public Media's Elizabeth Troval begins our look by taking us back to the candidate's final debate as she watched events unfold at the Republican Party headquarters. Here at the debate watch party, border security really stirs up the crowd. As for me, I'm incredibly honored to have received the formal endorsement of the National Border Patrol Council. Sonny Couture is watching. He says he supports Senator Cruz and President Trump and believes people should come here legally. Like my family, like my parents, we waited 20 years to become American citizens. So if the dreamers want to come, they can get in line. They can do the legal thing. They can do the right thing. Katu wants the U.S. to be tough on illegal immigration. We need to remove, deport violent, illegal criminals. And also a huge amount of funding needs to go to, you know, keep on building the wall. That's very, very important, especially to us legal immigrants. About 10 miles southeast, I catch up with Edward Lawrence. We're at Bank of America Center, downtown Houston. He's on the clock as a security officer. Lawrence says, of course, he'll be voting in the midterms. As for immigration, Lawrence thinks. It's, it's not fair for somebody to be deported back to Mexico just because they don't have a green card. I mean, unfortunately, I know that's the law here in U.S. He also believes in better border security. But security is one thing, but this wall, uh-uh, nah, too much to do. <laughs> 
Around the corner in a cafeteria underground, I talked to more Houstonians with opinions as diverse as the city. An older white man who says immigrants ought to assimilate and learn English. A tech worker from India who says the legal immigration system needs to be more efficient. And a Latina paralegal who says she's for dreamers and against family separation, but may not get around to voting. And that's just in Houston. So what do folks think on the other side of the state? KRWG's Mallory Falk takes us nearly 800 miles away to El Paso. I'm at Gussie's Tamales and Bakery in central El Paso, just a few miles away from the U.S.-Mexico border. The glass cases here are filled with Mexican pastries and, for the holiday season, iced cookies shaped like pumpkins and bats. Paula Silva rings up customers. This may be Beto O'Rourke's hometown, but when I ask if she's following the midterm elections, she says, Oh, well, not really, because of work and everything. But she is concerned about one issue in particular, dreamers. I think it's really important for those people to uh, keep studying and working and because we're all the same. That's a common sentiment in this border community. I catch Hector Mata on his way out of Gussie's with a paper bag full of tamales. Mata came to the U.S. from Mexico and eventually gained citizenship. Now he says he feels a great sense of responsibility to use his vote to demand change. Mata says there should be more opportunities for people without documents so they can get decent jobs and take care of their families. He says pushing for this change is the least he can do after the support he received when he first arrived in the country. A few miles away at the El Paso County Courthouse, Rebecca Patno just cast her ballot. I couldn't wait to get out and vote immediately for Beto O'Rourke because I might get hit by a bus tomorrow and I need to cast my vote while I could. Patnode lived all over the country before setting down roots in El Paso. It's the safest place that I've ever lived. But I kind of resent the idea that we have to defend our community as being safe just because it is a predominantly brown community. In the second Senate debate, Ted Cruz said El Paso is safe because of the border wall. El Paso is right across from Juarez, one of the most dangerous cities in the world. 3,000 murders last year. There's a wall there. That wall is one of the tools you use to protect us. Patnode's voting buddy, Arian Rodriguez, sees things differently. Um, I come from immigrants. I'm first generation on my dad's side. We don't need a wall. We don't have an abnormal amount of violence. She wishes the rest of the state understood that. From the El Paso borderlands that Beto O'Rourke calls home to the international port of Houston where Ted Cruz lives, voters are thinking about immigration. We'll find out which Senate candidate Texans decide best represents their vision. For the Texas Standard, I'm Mallory Falk in El Paso. And I'm Elizabeth Troval in Houston. Support for Texas Standard comes from Rand Group, providing NetSuite ERP solutions built in the cloud. More at Software as Promised. Com. Support for Texas Standard comes from Great Texas Line Press, publisher of W.F. Strong's Stories from Texas. Some of them are true. At independent booksellers like River Oaks, The Twig, and Book People, as well as Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and Bucky's.
This is the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. Dia de los Muertos is a familiar and colorful part of Texas culture thanks to our long ties with Mexico. And beyond our own borders, Americans at large seem to be becoming more familiar with the traditions through recent pop culture. Just think of films like Coco and The Book of Life. But like the holiday itself has evolved, so have the celebrations. As Texas Public Radio's Lauren Terrazas reports from what has become a destination event during Dia de los Muertos, the festival in downtown San Antonio. Music bleeds out onto the streets and crowds swell the alleyways of La Villita Historic Arts Village on San Antonio's River Walk. Among the original artwork and fresh agua frescas is the largest open altar exhibition in San Antonio. Altars at the festival honor artists like painter Bob Ross and even famous animals like Coco, the gorilla that communicated with caretakers through sign language. One altar even pays homage to the 10 undocumented immigrants who were found dead in the back of a trailer truck in a San Antonio Walmart parking lot last summer. But the most familiar altars are the ones that honor ancestors. Irma Jimenez has designed and built altars for 20 years. She says many Hispanics have never grown up with the tradition. They've never seen an altar de los muertos. They've never seen an ofrenda. And, and now they're learning this and they all want to make one at home. The altars, also referred to as ofrendas, are an essential part of the Dia de los Muertos celebration. Items that are most often placed on an altar include photos of deceased loved ones, candles to guide the spirits on their way back to the land of the living, and even food to share with their dearly departed. Elizabeth Pacheco's altar is hard to miss. It stands nearly six feet tall with seven layers representing each of the natural elements. She says it mirrors a more traditional altar and every intricate detail holds significance. You have the papel picado for the air, you have the fire, you have earth. It is also represented with my family offerings. Each one of them, as you can see, has something special that meant something to them. The altar honors various ancestors and even her beloved bulldog. She says the dog is now fighting off evil spirits while the portal to the land of the dead remains open. Pacheco, whose face is painted to resemble an elaborate sugar skull, says she embraces the holiday from more of a cultural standpoint rather than a religious one. She finds the big public party more fulfilling because she can share the stories of her loved ones with the community, who in turn share their stories with her. There has been hundreds of people that have walked by today and I have shared in my family history, and I cannot even count how many people have actually shared a story with me as well. So it's been very heartfelt and rewarding to meet all these new people coming in from all over. Many feel these big celebrations, rather than the traditionally intimate practices, provide room for them to share this part of their culture with the rest of the world. Maxwell Jimenez is enjoying the festival in Maverick Plaza with his wife and daughter. He said it reminds him of how he celebrated as a child in Mexico. When I was a younger kid, I would celebrate uh, Dia de los Muertos at the, uh, in el Panteón, at the cemetery. Once we look past the Calavera t-shirts and koozies, the Dia de los Muertos Hollywood films, and even Day of the Dead-themed sporting events, Irma Jimenez says the tradition remains centered on the inevitability, but not finality, of death. Because I tell everybody that we die three times. The first time that you die is when your heart stops beating. The second time is when they bury you. And the third one is when they forget about you. So that's why, you know, doing something like this, we're remembered. We're always remembered. Recuérdame, aunque tengo que mirar.
I'm Lauren Terrazas for the Texas Standard. If there's a, well, we'll get to that in just a moment. You know, people watching, everyone does it. It's probably natural to wonder if the people we're looking at are who they appear to be or if they're all keeping secrets. Who doesn't keep secrets? Though, let's admit, some are bigger than others, and the bigger they are, the harder they can be to keep to yourself. Well, that's part of the idea behind the whole truth, wherein listeners are invited to share their secrets in exchange for anonymity. I'm afraid of losing my job. Yeah. Same here. I'm just afraid of judgment. I have friends in, in, in my city, and um, they were discovered to be in an open relationship, and they were summarily fired. I'm married. I've been married for about a decade. And I'm married as well. I've been married uh, to my partner for five years. But we're not married to each other. No. No. (laughs) My relationship with you right now is one where we're completely open with our partners about what's going on. And we we kind of meet and we hang out. That's, That's what we might call like kitchen table poly. Even when I was really young and coming up in high school or in in college and I was dating, I always wanted to just date whomever I wanted to. um, And I didn't want to just be with one person. I just don't think that, you know, in terms of evolution, people were meant to stay with one partner for that long. I didn't really think that I would ever get married. And then I just met this wonderful person. Um, But then I remember having a conversation with my husband and saying, I really just miss connecting with other people in more intimate and even romantic ways. And he was very surprised and did not like to hear that at all and said, I don't I don't think I can handle that. And I just said, I don't want to break up. I love him and I don't want to break up with him. Um, And so we left at that for many, many years. And then um, he started bringing up this conversation again and he started um, asking me if I would still be interested in something like an open marriage or an an open relationship and I was thrilled uh, because I really thought that that would be something impossible for him. I was extremely, extremely lucky in that regard. We like wrote up a contract and then just over time pretty much every single one of those rules was broken um, by one or both of us at the same time it'd be pretty funny because she would get home and she'd be like hey so like I did this thing and I'd be like yeah I've been wanting to do that too (laughs) and there would just be this relief like okay good so we can move move past that yeah man it's a ton of work Here's the thing is that you get something for the work. So like monogamy, for example, you you rarely face jealousy. And when you do face jealousy, it's about minimizing it or it's about putting it in a closet or it's about how it's the other person's fault. In non-monogamy, jealousy is something that you have to own and that you have to work through. I also think that um, one of the benefits of my husband and I having been married for a long time is that we really had a, a big amount of trust um, built up between us and of course there may may be times where I feel insecure because one of his partners 
has some aspect of their personality or their appearance that I don't have. But I know that we're not trying to replace each other. That's absolutely not the goal. To me, polyamory is freedom. It's absolutely about freedom. And I think it, it definitely allows for a lot of joy, a lot of growth. And that's, and that's the, the whole, whole truth. truth. All right. Tell us your whole truth. Email us, Standard at KUT.org. We will share your secret, but not who you are. Support for Texas Standard comes from the Texas Tuition Promise Fund and the Texas College Savings Plan, administered by the state of Texas, offering a pair of plans that can help families save toward college dreams. More at savenowforcollege.org. I am Jody Edgerton, and I'm with the Typewriter Rodeo. And we are a group that crafts custom poems on vintage typewriters. You give us a word, an idea, a phrase, something you'd like a poem about, and we will write you a poem on the spot. This poem is a request for Louise Griffith. The Leaf Blowers. My neighbor blew his leaves at me, and I mine back at him. His pecans mixed up with my oaks, and both our elms mixed in. We hit our blowers at the same time, pointed each at each. Full power blasting, the leaves rose up, caught near yet out of reach. They were no longer on my lawn, and his were not on his. Our HOA was happy. It was lawn-decluttered bliss. But here we stay, day after day, our leafy impasse grows. For neither neighbor will relent, and so our leaves just blow. I'm Jody Edgerton, and you're on Texas Standard Time. Support for the Typewriter Radio comes from Texas Children's Hospital, focused on outcomes and care, and providing treatment to kids in the Lone Star State and beyond for more than 60 years. Texas Children's Hospital, personalized care for every child. More at texaschildrens.org. Okay, you know how this works, right? You send us a poem idea, any idea will do, and we send it along to our friends at the Typewriter Rodeo. Then you can listen each Friday right here on The Standard. See if your idea was selected. You'll also find the Typewriter Rodeo anytime on iTunes or wherever fine podcasts are served. And here we are on this Friday once again, last day of early voting in Texas, only four days, T minus four till the midterm elections. So what better time to talk politics? Here to help us sort out the week that was Emma Platoff from the Texas Tribune. Emma, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. All right. So as we mentioned, we're talking about a last day to vote early before next Tuesday's midterms. But, you know, we've already seen many counties across the Lone Star State shattering some of the uh, voter turnout records. What's turnout been like from what you can tell? Early voting this year has already shattered the uh, records from 2014, and we're on pace now actually to exceed in early voting alone all the ballots that were cast in Texas in the last midterm election. So a lot of enthusiasm on both sides, it's looking like. Sort of comparable to what you see in a presidential cycle, right? That's the model a lot of strategists are looking at this as, yeah. Yeah. I guess uh, in part that's because we have some pretty interesting races, Uh, you know, uh, uh, I'm th- we should stop, though, before we move on to that big U.S. Senate race. I'm just curious, since we're now talking about this early voting, what happens on Tuesday? Do you think we're going to still see a big turnout on Tuesday itself? Or, or what, what are the experts saying? 
It's likely to be a high turnout. I think that said, we do see in Texas that most votes are cast before Election Day itself. So a lot of these decisions have already been made, which is kind of eerie to think about, um, but yeah. likely still still high turnout on Tuesday. OK. All right. So uh, uh, now let's move on to that U.S. Senate race, which is one of the many reasons that people have been so uh, active during this during this uh, midterm season. So we have Beto O'Rourke on one side, we have Ted Cruz on the other, and um, a lot of people looking at the polls and wondering how they jibe with the yard signs and with the turnouts <laughs> and with what we're seeing on social media. What are the polls saying? What's the latest? All the recent polls have this race pretty close, single digits with Cruz ahead. Um, some of the most recent polls have actually had it in a statistical dead heat. That's what we call it when the margin of victory projected is smaller than the margin of error in the poll. So it's going to be a close race, absolutely. You know, um, funny, I think I've only seen during the, in the, the entirety of this campaign season only one poll, maybe I'm wrong here, but it, I think only one poll that put Beto O'Rourke ahead of Ted Cruz. That's right. Yeah. So do you think that perhaps, and this is something that the New York Times is kind of asking its readers about, do you think that the polls themselves may have, may be underestimating the turnout factor here? That's that's what Democrats are saying. Absolutely. They say, you know, voting for better or work are a lot of people who we've never seen at the polls before. Strategists are looking at these early voting returns and saying, you know, th this group looks like a bunch of Democrats. These look like Republicans. But these people, we rarely see them outside a presidential election year. We've never seen these people vote before. It's hard to say what these people are doing at the polls. Yeah. The the dark art of uh, waiting in these polls. That's <laughs> Yeah. So um, uh, there's another aspect here uh, of, of the voting and that has to do with the machines where people are casting their ballots and there's been something of a controversy this week. A few people have reported, it's important to note these are not high numbers, but that the uh, voting machines appear to be flipping their preferences when they vote straight party um, on straight party lines. The Secretary of State's office has characterized that as user error. What it really is, it seems to us, is just old technology. These are voting machines largely that were purchased in 2002. Mm -hmm. You know, it's we, we've had some upgrades since then. <laughs> <A few>. uh, <laughs> yeah. So um, what, what information specialists sort of predict is happening is that people are just waiting too long. You know, they're clicking quickly but it's important to note this has been reported very few times and it is an error that you can correct as a voter if you see this happen on yeah, your the, sheet. The important thing I think is to look back over your ballot before you close things out make sure that the people that it shows you're casting a ballot for are those that you really want to cast that ballot for. Absolutely. Emma Platoff, breaking news and civil courts reporter for the Texas Tribune and likely to be a very busy person <laughs> on Tuesday. Thanks so much and have a great weekend. Thanks for having me. And you are listening to the Texas Standard. Joining us once again, it's our social media editor, Wells Dunbar. Hi, David. Well, offering few detail, details, President Trump promised yesterday the end to end of the so-called catch-and-release policy for undocumented migrants taken into detention at the border. So weird. Yeah, definitely. Hearing reaction to that, uh, to that, to those statements. He also warned of building new makeshift detention facilities, saying, "quote We're putting up massive cities of tents." On our Facebook page, David Gray King calls Trump's comments outrageous and incendiary. And Stephen Gautier says, you think it's bad now? I can only imagine what Trump will be saying in 2020, talking about uh, this uh, sort of monomaniacal focus we've had on the border and immigration issues coming mm -hmm. from the president and many uh, in the Republican Party as well there. Uh, also on Facebook, Les Carnes asks, so with the deployment of troops to the border, will the DPS troopers go home? 
a reminder that uh, the situation at the border down there, I mean, uh, it's it's pretty unprecedented, the number of American troops that are going to be there, but it has been a highly monitored area for quite some, for uh, going back years now at right, this point. Right, absolutely. Also hearing from folks about uh, the show's top story, those jobs numbers, right. that uh, maybe in a slightly different political universe, you'd be hearing more about that than <laughs> all this stuff uh, related to the border and immigration. Right, right. But interesting perspective here from Crispy Crunch 93 they say we should stop focusing on employment numbers and instead focus on wages if most new jobs are part-time temporary or low wage then employment rates don't matter as much and actually mask the income problems many of us face yeah uh but uh, as uh, some economists are saying there's a concern that if you want to keep the best and the brightest mm-hmm. and in fact if you want to fill some of those open positions you're going to have to offer higher wages. Yeah. And that could drive up prices. So, so whether or not yeah, that'll get borne out remains to be seen. Remains to be seen. And of course, as you and Emma were just discussing, yeah, people still can't still can't stop talking about the election. These polling numbers. Sarah Yates says, I can't trust polls after the 2016 election. Uh-huh. I'm just going to let the final votes on Tuesday speak for themselves. But she says, I believe that Beto O'Rourke has what it takes to win. It's the last day of early voting, Texas. Make sure your vote counts. We're out of time for the big broadcast, but we're going to be back here on Monday, and we hope you will join us. On behalf of the entire Texas Standard team, I'm David Brown wishing you a wonderful weekend. Philanthropic support for Texas Standard comes from Casey and Scott O'Hare, the Winkler Family Foundation, Lynn Dobson and Greg Waldridge, Adrian Killam, and the George Huntington family. Would your company or organization like to be a sponsor as well? Contact your local station for opportunities within your community. For statewide sponsorships, visit TexasPublicMediaNetwork.com. PRI Public Radio International.